welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James. Welcome to this latest podcast, which is the second podcast on ICSA, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse and its recently published report. And I'm joined once again by Jason, Becky and Duncan. Hi, Jason, Becky and Duncan. Hello. And Jason, Becky and Duncan were core participants at ICSA. So we're going to pick up where we left off in the first podcast that we did on ICSA and its report. And I'm going to start with Jason, because Jason, I think, would be quite interested in talking about ICSA's recommendation that the limitation law be amended in this country. So for those who are not aware, in this country, like lots of countries, there's a limitation law. It's the Limitation Act 1980. And it says basically that claims for compensation have to be brought before a court within three years of whatever it is that you're complaining about. So if I get run over by the bus today and my leg gets broken, I have three years to bring a claim against the bus company for compensation for my injuries and loss of earnings and whatever. If I wait three years in a day, tough. I've left it too late. I'm out of time. And the bus company can say to the judge, this case should be dismissed. And the judge would dismiss the case. And the same law applies to survivors and victims of child sexual abuse. And as we know, they, because of what's happened to them, wait many years before they come forward. And so often they get caught by this law. And sometimes judges allow the case to proceed out of time if it's fair to do so. But lots of cases still get caught up in this law and they fail. And ICSA heard a lot of evidence about that and recommended that the law be changed. So I will stop talking for a moment and let Jason take over and explain what ICSA had to say about things. And we can take it from there. Yeah, I just found it interesting with ICSA that they were saying to remove the three-year limitations, but they weren't giving a ceiling either. It was just kind of left open there. And I have to compare this to the Irish law, because in Irish law, it used to be three years was the statute of limitations for child abuse, but they've extended that to six years. However, if you're going to go make a claim against an institution or a religion, that's reduced to two years. And then, however, there's a there's an additional aspect to the law in that if you are a minor and you're considered incapable of bringing a claim independently, that doesn't start until you're 18. But even then, at that point, even after the three year or after the six years, if you still, you know, you weren't mentally in, in, in a position, then you're assessed by a psychiatrist to see whether you weren't able at that point to be able to take a case so it can be extended. But also the courts then have to look at the person's situation and also the rights of the perpetrator. And so it has a, a balancing act. But I didn't see that in this 
report if there's anything like that or any recommendation in that in that regard. So it's kind of a little bit strange again in that there's nothing concrete put in place so that you know a child can get proper justice and that there's mm-hmm. a system in place that considers all the, the various aspects for someone why they, they may or may not report a, a case of sexual abuse to the courts. I think, to be frank, I'm disappointed with ICSA in what it has said about this, because on the one hand, you think that it's a considered decision and recommendation, and a lot of people would sympathise with the position of survivors and say, well, you know, three-year rule is crazy and it's unfair, particularly even allowing for the fact that the law as it currently stands, that three-year period doesn't start to run until the child turns 18. But we know, don't we, that survivors are often in their well into their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, if not older, before they mm. come forward and disclose for the first time. And what is interesting is the fact that in the criminal courts, there have been successful prosecutions of child abusers, you know, abusers in their 80s and their 90s. And the period between the abuse and matters coming to light and the perpetrator being prosecuted, you know, can be 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you know, extreme periods of time, relatively speaking. But a successful prosecution nevertheless is possible. And for me, that's the benchmark. If a perpetrator can be prosecuted, regardless of the period of time, that tends to demonstrate that the criminal courts must have been satisfied with the quality of the evidence. And surely that should be the test, I would say, in any civil case. And you don't need time periods and you don't need get out of jail cards, so to speak, because ICSA has sort of said abolish the three-year period. Fine. We understand that why that should go. But then they go and say, well, case can still be dismissed if a fair trial isn't possible. Well, what does that mean? And what does that Mm. actually entail? Because I drew to Ix's attention a Scottish case, a recent Scottish case called the Sailors Society, where a case had been brought in respect of sexual abuse allegations. But there wasn't even a trial because the judge dismissed the case basically just by reading the you know, the statements and so on, and forming the opinion, well, a fair trial wasn't possible because the alleged perpetrator was dead. And that just seemed to be, if that's the way ICSA wanted to go, because my reading of its recommendation is, that's the way it suggested that we went. I don't see how that's really going to help survivors and victims and actually could be a step backwards, not forwards. What do you guys think? I think for me, I mean, my abuser abused me in the 70s. So I didn't bring the case to the attention of the police until 2016. So what would Igsa have done with with that case? I mean, it went to court in 2017. He was sentenced for nine counts of sexual assault and went to prison. And I finally felt that I had got justice. Now, the the reason why I think Igsa should really have spent a lot of time thinking about this was because there were a lot of people a lot of survivors that gave evidence to them from a religious organisation. And if you are part of a high control religion, such as the one that I was a part of, you know that if you speak out and you want to get justice by going to the police, you stand a chance of being shunned 
Now that means you lose the whole of your family, the whole of the, your society network of people. And that could even be, as in my case, your children, you know, your, your grandchildren that you're never going to hold in your hand. So this is the reason why a lot of survivors won't come forward for a very long time. So the courts really should be the ones that decide whether this can be, you know, a proper hearing can be had from this and what benefits going to be be had, not fixer and, and not a law. I think this should be left in the hands of those who know the law well, the judges and the court system. Just, so just so we're clear, because it, it, there, there is a difference, I suppose, between the civil and the, the criminal. So when it comes to a, a civil case, this is where the statute of limitations comes in. Am I correct? Incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. So if we want to take a criminal case against a perpetrator, we can, there's no statute of limitations as it is right now. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. The, you know, the law, criminal law has moved on considerably in the last 30 odd years. When I first started out as a lawyer, judges in the criminal courts didn't like these quotes and quotes historic child abuse cases. They thought, you know, this is ridiculous. That's the sort of language they would use. Why am I dealing with this case? You know, the allegations go back 20 odd years. But then, you know, everyone became a lot more aware of the realities. And so the criminal law, in my opinion, experience has moved on considerably. And that's why we see these successful prosecutions when you've got these time gaps of maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and perpetrators in their absence and so on being convicted and sent to prison. So that's a, a very sort of instructive backdrop in my opinion and which sort of contrasts with what happens in civil cases where you've got this statute of limitations you've got this three-year period and the Royal Commission in Australia recommended that you know the law be reformed out in the Australian states and that's largely happened and I can understand why ICSA has said that the three-year limitation period should go here as well. But they, they seem to be suggesting that we follow what they've gone and done in Scotland. Because Scotland has a separate legal system to the one in England, always has. And I just don't like ICSA saying, get rid of the three-year rule on the one hand. But on the other hand, a case can still be dismissed if a fair trial isn't possible. It seems to be one step forward and one step back. Mm. Sorry, my mistake there. Uh, so Jason. that's limitation. That's limitation. What else? I think we want to talk about, don't we, some of the other ICSA recommendations. So it's recommended, I think, as Jason has pointed out in a previous podcast, changes in record retention, which I think is extremely important because hmm. in lots of cases, access to justice has been thwarted because records have been destroyed. And um, we know from experience that there's a, a keenness to get records destroyed as quickly as possible. You know, that causes immense difficulties for survivors. And often it can mean that all the difference between justice and no justice. Yeah, because I, I, like I know from, you know, always witnesses, because that's my background. And we look at those religious group, that, that religious group across the world and the work that I do. And in the United States, for example, it is because of clergy penitent privilege which they always claim they hold on to records and they don't provide those to victims to be able to get justice. 
they say no that's it that's between that's between the penitent and ourselves so that's sealed and there's no access to it so this is what i like i find very interesting with this recommendation here is that the records they're recommending that they be held onto but also accessible by the victims so but then i guess this kind of comes back to your point alan is would they get a fair trial because <laughs> The perpetrator, would they get a fair trial if the victim has full access to these records that are supposed to have been held under a confessional, but now they're given full access and they could have a whole load of details in there that could mean that the perpetrator doesn't have a fair trial. So I guess you have to weigh up the aspects of the situation and what's being recommended here. Is it going to be for the benefit of the child? If it turns out that the case is just going to be dismissed based on there's nothing here that that's going to benefit the child. Well, know? that's an interesting question. Though. One, actually, I hadn't thought about, you know, because as we know from the Royal Commission in Australia, big arguments on the part of some religions about confessions and what is said in confession should stay within the confines of the confession. And the arguments that have said, well, no, child protection should not be undermined. That's my language and my terminology in saying that, you know, the sanctity of the confession has to be respected, but child protection should not be compromised. Yeah, I think I think yes. the report was was that was that was one yeah. thing that it was yeah. unequivocal about yeah. was the fact that there was no exemption mm. to the obligation to report however the knowledge had come to the person, including in the case of a a sacramental religious scenario where the information was received in a confession. So that was, I felt, a one point where at least the, the ICSA report came out quite clearly yeah. and said no exemptions. Yeah. And um, it would be interesting to see if, let us say, there is legislation that implements that, how that then plays out. Because at the time of the Royal Commission, I mean, Australia, when it published its report, you know, certain um, elements of, um, I think it was the Catholic Church, and was sort of saying, we'd rather go to prison than obey the law. But then that all sort of died away. So it would be interesting to see how that would play out here if that were to happen. But to be frank, I think we're quite a long way away at the moment from that actually becoming law. As we discussed in a previous podcast, there is the Victims' Bill currently in Parliament, and that's an ideal opportunity to get some of ICSA's recommendations actually onto the statute book. What else do we want to talk about in this podcast with the ICSA report? Because they talk about a children's minister, they talk about a, a sort of child protection authority, there was mention of a redress scheme. Yeah, so just on the, ch the, the children minister, because I, we have that now, I think that came in with our Children First Act, we got a children minister, and we have an organisation that was created as well called TUSLA, and that takes care of children and families. Is that going to be a case in, in here? Is this what's being recommended, that there be an organisation set up, or is there an organisation already set up that would be there to work with the minister if that minister was to be set up, uh, so that people have a go-to point, children have a go-to point, an organisation that's there for them to help them? If so, I mean, this is a good recommendation to recommend a minister and have a department within government that takes care and looks after the, the rights and the safety, I suppose, of children. I was just, just going to move on to the redress scheme. Again, that felt to me like something where the headline 
sounded appealing and then got less, less and less attractive as you read the details. Um, so I think first thing you notice is that's going to be limited to a period of five years where that redress scheme is running. Secondly, there's implication that the sort of amounts that would be given to a victim in compensation would not be of the order that they might receive if they made a civil claim. Therefore, they were expecting that people would still continue to make civil claims against organisations. So in essence, by the time I'd finished reading it, I thought, well, how is it really any different from the existing criminal injuries compensation Mm -hmm. scheme? The amounts seemed to be just nominal as an acknowledgement that you you were hurt. And then there was a, a second tier you might apply for that was based on the, the amount of suffering or cost to you in terms of lost income and so on, but a lot more work involved in making that kind of claim. So essentially, it, it felt people will probably end up making civil claims anyway. And then there was the suggestion that organisations involved would voluntarily contribute to that redress scheme. And again, my my immediate thought was, yeah, that was what the Australian Royal Commission hoped would happen. And Jehovah's Witnesses in particular said, no, you know, it doesn't apply to us because we don't run any activities for children. Therefore, we're not responsible for any children who were abused. Therefore, we don't need to contribute to the scheme. And in the end, it was only at the point where they were about to lose their charitable status and the tax benefits that go with it, almost under threat of that, that they mm. finally capitulated and, and said. So, as Jason said previously, I think naming and shaming probably isn't isn't enough. It's not until it, it's going to hit them in the wallet that yeah. they'll actually do anything about it. Well, very interesting observation. And uh, again, you know, I wonder why ICSA raises expectations and you start to think, well, this ends up just duplicating criminal injuries compensation yeah. scheme, which is, you know, from a survivor perspective, far from satisfactory with all its mm. requirements and rules and regulations and eligibility criteria and so on. And given the current sort of economic and political climate, questions are going to be asked, well, why should taxpayers fund it? Surely it should be funded by the perpetrators and the wrongdoers. Yeah. I think there, yeah. was a, there was a change in, in terms of eligibility in, in that for the first tier of compensation the only eligibility criteria was that you had suffered child abuse but that didn't mean that you were going to receive any amount that was going to be really reparation for the kind of financial loss to you as a result of that and and everything that goes with it it was just implied to me that it was like a nominal sum that would say yes yes we we acknowledge you were abused we're very sorry have some money and not enough to cover private mental health support either. When you consider the cost of private mental health support, yeah. we know that the NHS is is stretched at the moment. I mean, locally here is over a year waiting list. Yeah, is the point I'm going to make is, and I don't think I'm being controversial. The perpetrators, the abusers, are the ones who should be paying. And yeah. there's already law in place called the a criminal compensation law, which is that when the offender, the abuser, the child abuser is sentenced, the judge is supposed to make a criminal compensation order and order the, you know, the offender to pay compensation to the victim. You know, it's not optional. It, it's there and it doesn't happen. And it certainly didn't happen with me. No. And um, ICSA had a lot of evidence about that. I think I'm 
pretty sure there was a survivor who made the point to Ixa about the fact, well, when my offender was sentenced, he wasn't ordered to pay me compensation. But then I think he may have had a Rolex watch. So why wasn't that confiscated from the... Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I think that was a very telling and informative point. And Mm. the Ministry, I think it's the Ministry of Justice, now publishes, I think annually, um, um, statistics which show how many compensation orders are made in the criminal courts. And in respect of victims of child abuse, it is minuscule. It is so minuscule, it's unbelievable. So the law isn't, as it currently is, isn't working. And I find it extremely frustrating. Frustrating. Yeah. (laughs) That's where, in my view, Ixler should have been saying, if it wants redress, it should be saying, well, actually, there is law that says these perpetrators should be paying. So this is how it needs to happen. And I think that would have made some of us survivors feel that we'd been heard. A, a lot have got in touch with me and um, feel, well, what was the point of that then? Because, you know, there's this and there's this loophole and there's that loophole. You know, if they if these guys on the panel were experienced in the law, why have they made some things very sort of, is it ambiguous, Duncan? Yeah. Um, Obscure, yeah, Yeah, you know, it's Mm. just so many areas where they really could have latched on to to our experiences and and made some really clear definitions. But yeah, just leaves you wanting a little. So I think it's quite clear that there is much work to be done. I think there is. And this is why we need to uh, lobby Parliament, I think. Yeah, I think, I think firstly to to get them to implement at least what's been recommended rather than go around the debate and water it down. Make sure that every citizen is aware of their responsibility for to care for children. They say it takes a village to raise a child, doesn't it? It's a, it's a community responsibility to, to look after children. And whether we've got our own or not, surely we should care enough that children are protected from sexual abuse. If if we fail, then we all pay the price later in terms of the far-reaching consequences. We, as a society, are picking up the pieces of our own failure to protect them. Very interestingly, um, I should have mentioned this earlier, So in Jersey, they had their own child abuse inquiry a couple of years ago in its own report. And one of the many recommendations in the report was, which led to the creation of a children's minister. So there's a children's minister in Jersey. And there's now a children's day. Oh. Uh, yeah. Jersey comes under a lot of criticism, has had a lot of criticism. But, you know, out of all of that, there is... A children's minister and there is a children's day which is celebrated i think that's the right word it seems to me there's a lot of information and knowledge shared in order to engage schools and and the pupils in children's day oh you see now that's good isn't it that is good i like that the fact that there's a children's day then you feel involved as a community it's a community responsibility to to celebrate our children if we're celebrating our children then surely we're going to protect them as well and maybe going off on a tangent here but children have better antennae than adults and it's adults who blunt children's antennae and i think don't think we in my experience give enough credit to children and their knowledge and their intelligence and anything that helps to sort of empower them 
without sounding wokey, if you know what I mean, no, um, can be can right. be uh, can only be to the better because they tend we... to tell it like it is too, don't they? Children, they don't they don't tone it down so as not to upset anyone. They just say, no, this is this is how it is, and tell it plainly. And yeah. not often that's what's really needed. One of the things we've been learning about when when we were doing a course was. Don't tell your children to go hug that person. So if it's grandma, if it's uncle, if it's whoever it is, mm. and and say, oh, you know, go and give them a hug, a hug and a kiss. Yeah. It's one of those automatic things. They don't want to do it. Mm. Don't force them to do it. It's wrong because they have that awareness yeah. there. What you're doing is you you could be robbing them of something that yeah. could protect them later on. That's yeah. right. They're blunting the antennae that they have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On that interesting note, we're going to have to bring this podcast to an end. Any other thoughts, Jason? I guess just my last comment is, is it's good to see that there was mandatory reporting reference. It is just a pity that it's not as robust as we would like it. It's going to be interesting to see how this is going to roll out when government does take it on board. And, and as long as we can work hard to try and make sure that the government does create more robust laws than has been recommended, then we'll be in a good place. Yeah. Becky, Duncan, any closing thoughts? Just to reiterate what Jason said, I think we should consider the recommendations as a minimum. And uh, our, our goal would certainly be to implement something more robust. Absolutely. And the longer... The government stalls over this. We need to remember how many children are still being abused. Exactly. Thank you very much, Jason, Becky, Duncan. Thank you for joining me. Much appreciated. And thank you for joining us for this latest podcast. As always, if you have any questions or concerns in relation to this podcast or any of the podcasts that we roll out, please do get in touch. Otherwise, I look forward to speaking to you in our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.